After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy. And we are here to get you ready for the third weekend of college baseball. As usual, the third weekend is a jam-packed weekend. If you you thought last weekend was a little light with just one game between top 25 teams, you have nothing to worry about this weekend. It more than makes up. For last weekend, you've got the Shriners Hospital for Children College Classic in Houston, which features four top 25 teams, uh, four top, yeah, four top 25 teams. Uh, Just a a great tournament, as always, there at Minute Maid Park. You've got a trio of big-time ACC, SEC, in-state rivalries. You've got some exciting non-conference series. Beyond that, it's... uh, it, th- this weekend really is one of the, the best weekends in college baseball for me anyway. Uh, we are going to uh, gonna dive into that here today on the Baseball America College podcast. Uh, Joe, it's, uh, we're excited. We've got a lot to talk about today. How are you doing? I'm, uh, I'm, I'm doing well. I'm excited also to get into what is just truly a jam-packed weekend. I say that without snark or anything like that, because I mean, it really is. We could, we, we could never touch on everything that there is to touch on this weekend. And the recap episode will be a similar challenge. I'm sure come early next week, Uh, before we go any further though, I mean, like there's, there's big news. Um, You know, it's probably been on a lot of minds in the last couple of days. Um, You know, certainly for Teddy and I, it's, it's been pretty front of mind. Um, So, you know, I, we will get to previewing some of the stuff, but obviously I, I think, I think everybody listening knows what we're referring to here. And that's it. Teddy and I actually found out that Seton Hall and Seton Hill were named for the same person. Elizabeth it's Ann true. Seton it's is the true. namesake of Seton Hall and Seton Hill. You remember from our episode a week ago, you know, we kind of just mused, you know, where's the name Seton Hall come from? And we, we looked it up, Elizabeth Ann Seton. And then so then we, you know, we got a text message um, from someone who was like, uh, you know, that I uh, appreciate the the background info on, on Seton Hall kind of jokingly. And I looked up Seton Hill and sure enough, Elizabeth Ann Seton, who Seton Hill is named for. So really the confusion about Seton Hall and Seton Hill goes just beyond the closeness of their names. I mean, they are, they are quite literally kind of born of the same uh, identity in, in some ways. Also shout out St. Elizabeth University, a third university named after Elizabeth Ann Seton, who 
um, you know, Teddy did a little bit of reading up on her. Sounds like she, you know, deserving of the honors, quite frankly. But uh, how about that? Just not where I anticipated that research was going to go. The uh, the first American to be canonized, Elizabeth Ann Seton, and uh, very tied into education. So that's why it's not just these three universities that Joe found. Like there are a bunch of like schools named after her because that was kind of kind of her deal was uh, was getting parochial education going in uh, in America. Quite frankly, three seems low, you know, like we should, <laughs> there are a lot of universe, like, I don't know if it, any of you people listening have ever looked at the sheer number of like division three schools that exist in this world. Like there should, there are a lot of schools out there. Uh, th- there should probably be more named for Elizabeth Ann Seton. So shout out to Elizabeth Ann Seton and, and uh, your various colleges. Indeed. So that, that closes the loop uh, from last week when Joe asked uh, what is Seton Hall and meant it in a baseball term. And I took it uh, much broader. And so now we're, we're closing that loop for you because that's what we do here on the Baseball America College podcast. Uh, the other piece of news that's been in uh, front of mind for baseball fans across the country uh, is that Major League Baseball's uh, negotiations with the Players Union ended. Um, well, I shouldn't say they ended whatever a deadline passed yesterday being Tuesday as we record this on Wednesday and major league baseball's lockout continues and commissioner Rob Manfred announced that opening day as well as the the first two series of the season have been canceled Uh, for college baseball. uh, Obviously that doesn't really mean a whole lot. The season continues. The draft remains on track in uh in june and and or july rather and and all the rest of it actually i guess mlb still hasn't announced a date for the draft but you know whatever um all of that uh continues apace but it's still not good for baseball at any level when this kind of thing happens as you know consumer sentiment about the game uh is uh is not great if you uh if you go on on Twitter or, or talk to baseball fans in general, uh, a lot of, a lot of angry people at baseball. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of where the game is today. Uh, hopefully college baseball can provide some relief um, for, for folks. And if you don't care about major league baseball, then, you know, just uh, keep on caring about college baseball. And uh, that that's what we're here for, but it, uh, I obviously when, when you see it on the highest level, not being able to, uh, to get opening day, on on time it's uh it's not a great not a great situation yeah i'm with you that uh you know generally i think what is good for the whole of baseball is good for college baseball and in trickling down to to all of the levels but i but i do think i know you're working on something along these lines but i i do think there is some opportunities on the fringes maybe for college baseball to um capitalize on this and to become a little more front of mind among baseball fans anyway. So, you know, we'll see, there's been other opportunities before and and I'm not here to say that there wasn't ground gained, right. I mean, there was the year that there was the, um, you know, I believe it was the NBA and NHL lockouts at the same time back in, I think it was Oh five Oh six. Maybe it was Oh six Oh seven. I forget what years those were, but, and so there was more college baseball on ESPN and, and did that have an effect? Like, you know, I don't know, it's been long enough ago and I was young enough. I don't really remember, but so there have been other opportunities. You just hope that some ground is, is made up here. The idea that college baseball is just going to like be like a rocket ship over these next few months, I think is probably a little bit foolhardy. Um, if we start getting like really deep into April and, and 
you know, even May, hopefully not, but even if in May, then maybe we'll sing it a little bit different tune because then we're able to present late season college baseball or postseason college baseball to fans who are otherwise maybe uninitiated. But, um, but yeah, so, I mean, certainly you'd prefer MLB be in spring training, taking the field and, and baseball generally just being in a, in a little bit healthier place. Yeah. I don't want to dive too deep into my uh, future piece right now, just because like I'm in the early stages of reporting and, and, you know, fact collecting and talking with experts and, and all the rest of it about it. But yeah, the, I, I would definitely echo the idea, Joe, that, that it is foolhardy to think that uh, college baseball is going to go to the moon off of this. Um, a couple reasons for that. Number one, just that right now, all that's happened is that MLB has canceled one week of games effectively in April. Um, that's still a month away and it's a very busy sports month. Um, some people are still optimistic that the major league season will start in mid April. Now, I don't know that I share that optimism, but like, Hey, if you, if that's where you're at, like, um, that doesn't leave a whole big chunk of, of time for, for college baseball to make headway. Uh, even if the lockout does extend pretty deep though, you know, you're, you're still competing in a very crowded marketplace all spring long. Uh, you've got everything, you know, pretty much every sport except for football exists in the spring, right? You've got the NBA and the NHL going down the stretch, uh, in Europe, soccer is also going down the stretch in America. The MLS, uh, has kicked off. You've got softball, you've got lacrosse. And even from a football perspective, like, let's just not pretend that the NFL isn't going to like see an opening and just take all of the available oxygen that the baseball just seeded, you know, like the combine, the draft, from a college perspective, spring games, these are all really big deals as well. And, you know, so just because it's not their regular season doesn't mean that football won't find a way to, to, you know, eat up even more airtime and collective thought time uh, in, in sports fans' lives. And then also like the USFL is getting on the field at some point this spring. So if you actually do want live football, like that's, uh, that's going to exist. So there's a lot for, for college baseball to compete with. Um, you know, every one of these sports I'm sure right now is trying to find a way uh, to think about how can we position ourselves in this time? How can we convince ESPN that the, the telecasts that they're, they're losing for uh, MLB, how can we make them be ours? Uh, right now, that's only a couple. Uh, but again, the longer it continues, the more the more broadcast time ESPN has available to it. But it's not just college baseball that's going to be thinking that way. And just because it's the other baseball available to ESPN and other you know, TV providers doesn't mean that that's the way that they're going to land. Um, so I, I'm hopeful that more people find find college baseball. But right now. Uh, th there's there's still a lot of, of work that college baseball would have to do to uh, to make that a reality. All right, with that uh, pleasant note, 
<laughs> um, I mean, well, I guess uh, I could have come in with something like a little more, but like, you know, it was just well said. So uh, we're, we're, not, we're not here to uh, try to like soothe the listener. We're just here to tell everybody straight. So it is, it is what it is. We, we will pick you yeah. up with our preview content. I, I don't want to, I don't want to like, yeah, getting went down on this, but just realism about what college baseball can get done this spring is, is useful, I think. Um, so yeah, we're, we're going to, uh, now, uh, just get to, to week three. Like I said, it's a, it's a jam packed week. There's no reason to, uh, to take any, any more time to, to get into the meat of this. There's so much to talk about. So that's what we're going to do here on the baseball America college podcast. But first check this out. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. All right, Joe, week three, I keep saying it's a big week. Let's just run down some of the stuff happening here real quickly. We've got the Shriners Hospitals for Children College Classic being held at Minute Maid Park for like the 20-something year. I should have looked up how long they've been running this thing. I think it's 22 years now. Uh, the granddaddy of, uh, of non-conference baseball tournaments, really, uh, with a an a great field headlined by number one, Texas, but there are four top 25 teams there. You've got the trio of ACC, SEC, and state rivalry series. That's Georgia, Georgia Tech, Florida, and Miami, Clemson, and South Carolina. Uh, you've got some fun series between SEC teams and some rising uh, teams from the American in uh, UCF hosting Ole Miss and Mississippi State visiting Tulane. The Frisco, Frisco College Classic is, is happening this weekend in Texas. Um, 
a couple of big West teams are heading to Oregon. You got UCI at Oregon State and uh, UCSB at, at Oregon. Uh, so there's just there's a lot going on from coast to coast this weekend, and, and I am happy that, that we're going to be able to dive into it here. We are going yeah, we, to, uh, you know, go ahead. Jeff. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, listeners, uh, you know, you might understand the format now that we talk about the big stuff and then I bring in something that's a little more off the radar. And, and I have to say, like, if I, there were some things that I thought about counting as off the radar this week that are really pretty much on the radar and would have been a marquee series last week. And it's just funny how it goes week to week. So the shifting definition of what's actually under the radar kind of is a reality given the week to week fluctuations and the quality of what we've got. That is 100% true. I didn't even mention the Keith LeClaire classic, which is always worth mentioning because of who Keith LeClaire was and uh, what he represents, not only for East Carolina, but college baseball in general and the fight, um, you know, against ALS. Uh, But like that tournament, like it also looks great. You know, it's just, we, we only have, we only have so much time here. So anyway, let's, uh, let's get to the headliner. That's the Shriners Hospitals for Children College Classic again, happening at Minute Maid Park. You've got number the the format this year is they've got three Big Twelve teams playing three other teams, um, two of which are, are SEC teams. It's not a Big Twelve SEC field completely, but they did bring three Big Twelve teams in, and they are number one Texas, Baylor, and Oklahoma. They will be facing off against. LSU, number eight, LSU, number 16, Tennessee, and number 23, UCLA. This is an absolute heavyweight field. Uh, one of the better uh, Shriners fields in recent memory. Not not the best necessarily, but it, it certainly rates very, very highly. And no small part of that is the fact that the number one team in the country is there and that the Longhorns are coming in undefeated. Yeah, that certainly helps. Um, you know, getting LSU into this field, not obviously the quality of the the team LSU has, but also that means that uh, you can bet those games are going to be going to be packed. Tennessee yeah, actually, from a fan you know, perspective, key, like that yeah. LSU Texas game on Saturday, I would expect to, you know, that you're not going to fill it out. It's a major league baseball stadium, but you're going to, you're going to get a lot of fans in there. No doubt. Yeah. And, you know, then you've got some, I mean, they, I don't want to say lucked out because Tennessee has been trending this way, but you know, you've got Tennessee kind of at a, at a, um, you know, something of a peak right now coming off of going to Omaha teams like looked really good for first couple of weeks, at least offensively. So I think there, that's a good time for Tennessee to be there and like low key, you know, Tennessee is actually no stranger to this tournament, like among the teams that you would not immediately um, associate with this tournament. So Houston and Rice historically, but then Baylor, A&M, Tech, Texas, TCU, you take those teams out of the mix. Like you don't have to go far before you get to Tennessee. They've been here three times before 2005, 2008, 2012. Um, those are a long time ago. Um, but uh, so they, they are, they, as a program, no stranger to this tournament, actually been around quite a bit, but they're getting a, a good version of, uh, of Tennessee this year. So as we try to preview this, uh, because it is onerous to preview, and you may have noticed, listener, that Teddy and I sometimes, uh, I don't want to say get carried away, but we just you know tend to be a little bit uh, windy, and we have a lot of stuff to get through today. So I thought maybe to simplify it a little bit, for all six teams, I have a question that I'm kind of asking going into the weekend in general, but also I think that will be specifically, that'll be relevant to this weekend, what they're going to face. So... Um, would you like them all at one time? Would you like them one at a time? 
Let's go one at a time. One at a time. Okay. Well, we'll start with number one, Texas. Why don't we? Um, and my question is, you know, what does the pitching do against Tennessee and LSU specifically? I mean, those are their first two games of this tournament. Uh, they're both the night game. Those are both going to be great atmospheres. I'm not suggesting that they're, although I suppose this is the realm of possibility. These offenses are good enough. They might have bad days. I think we expect them to be on the spectrum of good. It is too much to expect them to be as good as they were the first two weeks. However, the answer is somewhere in the middle here, but I, but I will be kind of fascinated to see what level of uh, quality we get from a Texas pitching staff that, as we've discussed a couple of times already this season, has, has just been everything we could have asked and more to this point of the season. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's uh, a, a key here for, for the Horns is can they slow down the very potent offenses that they're going to face uh, from the SEC schools, I don't want to minimize UCLA's offense, but it's not operating at a level that uh, Tennessee and, and LSU are to this point in the season. Now, I mean, competition obviously plays a factor in that, but still, um, that that is a significant thing here for the Horns. You know, we talked on Monday about how good they had pitched over the weekend against Alabama, how they had four shutouts in their first eight games, and they didn't quite add a fifth on Tuesday against Sam Houston state, but they did look very strong on the mound um, allowing one run. And it, it, it is what, what Texas is about. I mean, we, we've talked plenty about how run prevention in general is just what Texas is, is going to be about this year. And uh, so I, I think that's uh, that's absolutely one of the the key things to watch here for Texas. I mean, to me, the other thing is just, um, you know, they've had the spotlight. You're Texas. You always have the spotlight. But this is the first time that they're going to, you know, be facing a team with a number next to their name as well. And they're doing it on one of the biggest stages the the sport can provide in the regular season. So uh, just what that looks like as they as they head down to Houston and, and face. Uh, three other really good teams I, I'm curious about as well. Yeah. Okay. But, uh, you know, and the other thing just quickly on Texas is, you know, we talked about their offense, like, you know, like it's doing enough. I don't know necessarily that with, and we'll get to some of this momentarily, but with, with LSU, Tennessee and UCLA as their opponents, like I, you know, I don't know that those pitching staffs, those are, they're good pitchers on those pitching staffs. Not what I'm saying. I'm just saying those aren't the pitching staffs that are necessarily you think would be like, you know, look out, they could really, shut Texas down, although that's within the realm of possibility. So, okay. Uh, moving on, we will move on to LSU. And in a related note, uh, my question with them is how does the pitching staff hold up? Now they do have a little bit of a benefit of, you know, they're not going to be facing, well, for one, their own lineup, but also they're not going to be facing Tennessee's lineup. They get Oklahoma, they get Texas, they get Baylor. Those are three offenses that, um, for one, like with, with the offense like Texas, not necessarily going to be an explosive offense. And with Oklahoma and Baylor, offenses we thought were going to be pretty good coming into the season that haven't necessarily been that so far. And so this LSU pitching staff has had the benefit of playing, you know, Maine and uh, Southern and Towson. And, you know, they played Louisiana Tech, but that was a midweek game and they lost it, by the way. Um, so, you know, what is Blake Money, who's been excellent in his first two starts? What does he look like against money. an offense? I, you know, you might, one might say that actually, I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't want to be, I don't want to be that hacky, I guess, but like, yes, I get one, <laughs> one could say that. Yes. You could say he's been money. Uh, you know, so 
what does he look like against an offense that's a little more competent, a little more ready to compete? Um, you know, same question for guys like, you know, Ty Floyd. And um, so that uh, to me, that's my big question there, because that was the question about LSU coming in. And again, the offenses they're facing aren't among the elite in college baseball, but it's certainly a step up from what they've seen the first two weeks. Yeah, I don't think we've got an answer on LSU pitching to this point, and I think we're going to get an answer this weekend. Um, Maine scored some runs on LSU. Everyone was very taken with how many runs LSU scored on Maine on opening weekend, and look, I get it, but they weren't shutting Maine out. They're going to have to pitch better this weekend, and you know what we'll see. This will be a much truer test than anything we've seen to this point, including that midweek against Louisiana Tech, because you know we're we're now going to see LSU's weekend starters face better offenses. And uh, you know I, I don't know what to expect from uh, from Baylor offensively. They've they've been okay to this point, facing two pretty good pitching staffs in in Duke and Maryland. Uh, but we're we're going to find out a lot, I think, about LSU's pitching, and, and it's just going to be a very good litmus test here three weeks into the year. So moving on to Tennessee, and I think I'm actually going to scoot past, and you know, feel free to touch on whatever you'd like, but I'm going to scoot past kind of the obvious question, which is like, how real is the offensive production? Because like one, I just think that's that is the most obvious question. I think it kind of goes without saying based on the competition they faced, especially with with Iona last weekend. To me, the, the more interesting thing that, that is related but is a little bit different is can this team kind of avoid running as hot and cold? I think we saw it a little bit last year where this team was ran on kind of emotion and and uh, energy and and just but I think because of that they tended to run a little hot and cold. I mean, we saw you know I was there at the super regional and like the the crowds were just insane at Lindsey Nelson and the team was was flying high and they get to Omaha and they were just flat from minute one, basically in Omaha. And so they're going to go into a big environment. And on one hand, um, you'd think that might actually be a positive for a team that tends to run on energy and emotion. But the flip side of it is also that, you know, they came off of a weekend where everyone is gawking at the offensive numbers and understandably so. And so can you kind of keep that going in that type of environment? And then if it doesn't go well, say in the first, you know, five innings against the Texas pitching staff, do you get frustrated and dejected and do you let that bleed into the rest of the weekend? And so for me, that's actually the, the more interesting question for Tennessee this weekend. I think it's a fair question. And I think if you talk with people around college baseball, you have probably heard something similar to it over the last, like, I don't know, let's call it two years um, that look, Tennessee is great and they have all these wins and all the rest of it. But there is something to what Joe is saying. And I don't think that's going away. I don't think that was a last year thing for Tennessee. I just kind of think that's who they are right now. And some of that is probably viewed as a feature, not a bug. Um, it was buggish in Omaha, but I also think you can maybe overlook that Tennessee was so like getting to to Omaha last year was such a big deal for everyone with the program. They hadn't been there since 05. Um, and everyone was very well aware of that, that, you know, yes, they went to Omaha thinking more than just getting there, but at the same time, just getting there was also a very big thing uh, for the Vols. So I don't want to write it all off based on that, but you know, there's something to it, I think. And there's a very real chance that Pete Hansen comes out 
on Friday night and shuts down an offense that had previously been, you know, just absolutely going game busters. And then what is, what does that do? I, I think that's all fair. Um, but I, I do think that Tennessee probably understands that they have something to prove right now. Um, and, and that they're going to be motivated by seeing the number one next to, to Texas's name and everyone gets up for Texas anyway. And, somebody will flash a horns down and, you know, all the rest of it, you know, everything that comes with, with playing against Texas, um, you know, what happens the rest of the weekend? I don't know, but uh, I, I think they can definitely be up mentally for uh, for Friday night. I am very interested in what happens offensively. Uh, I don't want to gloss over that at all. Everyone went crazy for what happened last weekend against Iona and like, look, you have to hit the ball. You have to hit the home runs. You have to do everything but I don't really care that they score 20 runs on Iona. I, I really don't like they easily could have been playing with a run rule over the weekend and not hit 20. Uh, instead, they decided that they were going to, uh, you know, play those games out all the way. And, you know, they, they went off all weekend and, and there's a lot to be said for that. Uh, but I, I think that I am most interested in seeing what they look like against these pitching staffs Um Obviously, we've talked about Texas. Oklahoma can can pitch pretty well, and Baylor has historically been pretty difficult in this tournament. So, uh, I they don't have the you know the the Big Twelve side is maybe not the hardest side, even though it has the best team in the field that that you have to face. But um, it's uh, it's going to be a much like with LSU, it's going to be a very telling weekend for the Vols. I think it will also be something of a um, a telling weekend for telling is maybe not the right word, but I think it will be a, a weekend that will either shine a light on the talent or expose the youth of UCLA, um, a, a team that is, as we've described before, painfully young, uh, incredibly talented, you know, all of the above there. Uh, they've played a little bit up and down to their competition so far, which is kind of what you maybe expect for a young team. And so that's kind of my question is just, uh, are they going to play up this weekend? Because I think anything is on the table for UCLA. I mean, look, the the offense has been fairly pedestrian so far. And that was kind of a question coming into the season. Once you get past the youth and you just kind of, um, you know, take these players at face value, there was a question of like, where is the, where are the impact bats here? You know? Um, and so I think that is a little bit of a question. They've been pretty light offensively so far, but, you know, coming into this weekend, do they, so do they get kind of buried a little bit just because the competition is so good? They're not quite ready for it. I could see that. I can also see like, look, these kids are really talented and they're young and they're excited to, to make their mark. I mean, does UCLA come in here and, and really just play well and, and surprise some people now that's with the, the teams they're going to be facing this weekend. That is, um, you know, uh, a tough task for any team, but it, it certainly is within the realm of possibility for the guys they have. Here's my prediction. UCLA goes home with a winning record in this tournament. I, I, I just like what the Bruins are bringing here. Uh, you know, I, I've liked them all along. Like it hasn't been the smoothest ride to this point. Uh, but I love the fact that they don't have to face those sec offenses. I, I think that they're just much better equipped to, uh, you know, play the kinds of games that they're going to be asked to play this weekend than they would if they were having to face LSU and Tennessee and, you know, pick some other sec program. Uh, like if they were on the other side of this, I would, I would feel in it a, a much different spot because yeah, I, I have questions about them offensively, but I think they can, I think they can hang. 
and uh, you know I, I think they're going to be uh, going to be very energized to to play this weekend. Now, I mean, the one thing is they will you know, almost undoubtedly have the least amount of fans in the building. So they're going to have to create everything themselves or thrive on the fact that they are the outsiders here. But if they can do that, I, I don't see any reason why they can't go home uh, two and one or three and oh. Yeah. A little bit of a, a Joe story time here. I will look up the year. I will filibuster a little bit here because I will have to look up this 2009. Um, you talk about the lack of fans in 2009 UCLA and UC Irvine were in this tournament and they played and it makes sense. Cause they had to get away. You know, they had to fly back. They played the Sunday first game Sunday. And for those who are unaware now they play all three games of this tournament at 11 AM local back, back in, back in my day uh, they would play noon local for the first game, the first two days. And then they'd start Sunday an hour earlier. So this is an 11 a.m. start between two teams like from, you know, more than a thousand miles away. And like it was me and the buddy of mine who used to go to this tournament with me all the time. It was me and the buddy of mine. And I kid you not, maybe 50 of our closest friends, essentially. Like I said, in jest, of course, like 50 people were in there for this game. And it was cold, uh, really bitterly cold, frankly, um, especially that early in the day. So. Uh, yeah, UCLA will, will certainly be lacking a little bit in the, uh, the fan experience more than likely. Um, okay. You Moving know, one on of those to, people that was yep. in the building with you actually was one of your closest friends in the future is uh, that, that Dave Serrano should have been there with the, the eaters, right? Uh, 2009. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Yeah. Who knew? Who knew back then a, a colleague was uh, in one of those dugouts? How about that? If you'd have told me Dave, Dave's like, Hey, the head coach of the UC Irvine is uh, going to be one of your future colleagues. I pro- like the dummy that I am be like, I'm going to be a coach. Like, are you kidding? <laughs> like, like, how am I going to get that job? <laughs> oh man. Uh, an ode to irrational confidence uh, when you're in college. Um, yeah. Cause I, yeah, that, that was like smack in the middle of my college years, 2009. Um, some people spend their college years socializing and partying and, and meeting people. And I spend it at college baseball games, but that's why I guess I'm here uh, moving on to the Baylor bears. Uh, you alluded to some of the offensive questions. I, you know, they're hitting 226 as a team, uh, as we, as we record here, uh, they have a game Wednesdays so that will, number will change, but, um, I, I I'm less worried about that because the guys who are kind of, some of the guys who are struggling, like Jared McKenzie and Kyle Nevin and Chase Wesner and Jack Pineda. I, those guys are proven enough. I'm not too terribly worried about that. And they have faced good pitching. What's more interesting to me is on the mound where the numbers are actually pretty good. When you talk about Tyler Thomas and then Jake Jackson, the Nevada transfer, Matt Volker, a bullpen arm who transferred from LMU, um, Will Rigney, who like finally after injuries and all that kind of stuff in his Baylor career is finally appears to maybe be coming around a little bit. How how do they hold up? Because in the case of, of, for different reasons, in the case of Rigney, you've got a guy who's relatively unproven. This is now, it's hard to believe this is his third season, but when you consider injuries and pandemic, this is really the longest period of time he's been on the mound for Baylor and games in his career. So you've got that. And then you've got guys in Tyler Thomas and Jake Jackson that aren't really big guys who miss a lot of bats, right? I mean, they throw a lot of strikes um, they're effective kind of crafty pitchers, but they're not the guys who are going to be out there, you know, averaging 12 or 13 strikeouts per nine innings. 
And is that going to work against the types of teams they're going to face? Like you have to be pretty fine to, to avoid getting barrels against a team like LSU or a team like Tennessee. So to me, that's actually the more interesting question. Like, are there offensive questions? Like, sure. If they continue to hit 226, 226 as a team, they're not going to be that effective offensively, but I'm actually more interested in these pitchers that tend to pitch to a little more contact than average, especially in today's game. Like, can they hold up against offenses that actually, you know, are looking to make a lot of contact? Yeah, I don't love this as a matchup for Baylor, but the Bears are the most tested team to this point. Like six games against Duke and Maryland, uh, I think is better than what anyone else in the field has to this point. Uh, so does that help them at all? Like, I don't know. They're also going on the road for the first time in a weekend. And like, yes, Baylor will have plenty of fans there, but it, it is a, a different experience to to be away uh, from your own bed and all the rest of it. Like, I don't really know what to expect from Baylor. I think the questions you're asking are fair ones. Um, you know, Jake Jackson as a Nevada transfer is going to be experiencing, you know, something that he didn't get a whole lot of at Nevada. Uh, so what is that going to be like this weekend as well? So I, 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 I don't know what to make of Baylor to this point in the season. Um, you know, beating Duke last weekend was very good. Getting swept at home by Maryland on opening weekend was obviously not. So what does the third weekend have in store for the bears? I just have just blanket open question about that. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, I don't want to say it's a house money situation for Baylor necessarily, but when you're talking about putting up postseason resumes and things of that, of that nature, like really coming out of this thing, just getting, getting at least a win, like don't get swept here, but getting at least a win and, and getting out of it. Um, I think would be big for them because that's really something you can you can build on, and they've already banked some some good quality victories, and and so um, even though they not as much as they would like, obviously that Maryland series, but um, this is I don't want to say no, there's nothing to lose necessarily, um, but I think it's something close to that for them. They're going to get opportunities in, in Big Twelve play and some of the rest of their non-conference stuff to to bank some victories. And right now that I think they're the quality they have on their resume is, is going to be helpful more than hurtful at this point. So no, no one is going to uh, expect anything from Dave, Baylor this weekend, right? Like no one is going to look at this on paper and be like, well, Baylor's going to beat LSU like that. That's not going to be the expectation here. So I get what you're saying in terms of house money, but they also can't really afford a second sweep uh, in non-conference play. Yeah. You, I mean, you do start. Yeah. At some point it does become kind of like a confidence issue and you start to do get your, your resume starts to get buried a little bit. Um, yeah. And Baylor, you know, Baylor does tend to play well in this thing. Um, I mean, they did have a, a little bit of a rough stretch there for, but in more recent years, they've played pretty well there. Um, and in the early years, I mean, Baylor kind of ran this tournament a little bit in the early years. They won the um, inaugural. They won. Did they not? That's correct. And they, they had the first three most outstanding players. Uh, shout out Kelly Shopik. He was the first one in 2001. Uh, Tim Hartshorn, which is a name I'm not as familiar with in 2002. And then Michael Griffin, um, who I remember because that's about the time I started really like bearing down on college baseball. So I remember him as a player, uh, was the most outstanding player in 2003. I mean, they've had some, you know, the 2013 year, um, you know, Cal Tui was the most outstanding player. So, and they had the walk-off home run. I forget what year it was. Tucker Cascadden's walk-off home run. Um, I want to say 17? 17. Yeah. 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 So that was, and that was another year, by the way, that very little was expected of them there and they, they played well. So, um, yeah, I, I'm with you in general there. Okay. Uh, wrapping up Oklahoma, my question with them, you know, it's funny 
I think we had a little, just because of the way last year went, I think we had more confidence with where they were offensively than where they were on the mound. And so far with the help of, you know, a veteran in, in Jake Bennett, a newcomer in Chaz Martinez and some others, they seem to have shored up the pitching side, at least to some degree here. And the offense is a little bit stuck in neutral outside of a couple guys. And, and one of them, of course, is, is Peyton Graham. Uh, Diego Muniz is one of the others that's off to a pretty good start. But um, my question is, will, will the offense kind of get going here? And we've talked about the idea that, you know, there's questions about like, how good is this LSU pitching staff really? They haven't necessarily faced offenses that you would think would put up uh, too many runs on them. So what do you, what do you have against a more, certainly more talented Oklahoma offense? So can the offense kind of get going? Because I think if this offense swings the bats up to what we thought they would do, and this pitching staff can kind of hold the line and do what it's done so far. Like I think Oklahoma is probably going to be a little bit better than I certainly was giving them credit for coming into the season. Yeah. Seeing Oklahoma in Arlington on opening weekend, I came away impressed with, uh, how they played overall they pitched pretty well that weekend you know Arizona got them but they uh they otherwise pitched pretty well they shut out Auburn on opening day and uh, came back on Sunday and, and finished the thing off with a two uh two and one record so I it's there for them but you know they also have already been beaten by one of the best offenses in the country so now is that pitching staff which I agree has a lot of good things going for it. Those newcomers have pitched well. You know, Jake Bennett does some good things on the mound as well. Like they, they've got some pieces, uh, but they're now this weekend going to have to do it against two of the better offenses in the country. And, you know, even if UCLA isn't that, like UCLA can probably pitch with, with Oklahoma. So it's going to be a tricky weekend for the Sooners. Uh, but yeah, I, I do just kind of wonder overall, like, Okay, what do you what do you got on an in another one of these you know six team big league ballpark like uh, you know it's kind of crazy that Oklahoma's playing in both of them this year like uh, you know what 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 do you have this weekend now in Houston? Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, that maybe that's like a you talk about advantages on the margins. Maybe that's a little bit of an on the margin advantage for Oklahoma. Is that yeah, it feels pretty familiar. We were in something similar to this two weekends prior, so. Um, we will, we'll certainly have to see that is, uh, all six teams. We made it through. We did. I mean, it's, uh, it's a great weekend of baseball. Um, can stream it on, what is it? Astros.com. Uh, so, you know, check that out. If, uh, if you're so inclined and, and I would say that it's, uh, it's, it's definitely worth it. Uh, the one last thing I, I was, I was looking this up quickly here joe is on oklahoma yeah they have played one home game is all like they also just spent last weekend in arlington so this is uh oklahoma is going to play 10 games after this weekend nine of them in big league ballparks so that's uh that's living right yeah no kidding uh, nice spacious uh spacious places to get dressed and you know nice uh nice dugout amenities you know uh cushy chairs in the clubhouse like yeah that's that's not a bad way to spend the uh the early days of uh your season. All righty. Well, let's, uh, let's move it on. We've, uh, we, we talked about the, the big tournaments. Let's go to those ACC SEC showdowns and let's start in Georgia. It's uh clean old fashioned hate. 
number 14, Georgia, number 19, Georgia Tech. They split this weekend across three venues. They'll start in Atlanta uh, at Georgia Tech. They go to Athens on Saturday, and they close it out uh, at the AAA Gwinnett Stadium on Sunday. Joe, this is a series that Georgia has done very well in in recent years, but it's a match. It's a complete completely contrasting styles, which I find to be particularly interesting because Scott Strickland, the Georgia coach uh, is a former Danny Hall assistant at Georgia tech. Like they, they just have completely different philosophies about how they go about attacking their programs. Uh, Scott Strickland going much more pitching and defense there at Georgia and Danny Hall going for more offense uh, at Georgia tech. So contrasting styles, Two teams that are off to great starts this season. I think it's one loss between the two of them. And uh, it should be a, a really fun weekend of, of baseball there in Georgia. Yeah, a lot of – I actually hadn't really thought about that aspect of it, that you know, Danny Hall and Scott Strickland, a lot of, a lot of crossover there, both Kent State head coaches, something I, I wrote a little bit about in a, in a, in a previous life, something I, I wrote about at my old site, just that it, Kent State is one of those jobs that – um, you know, has developed coaches at a, at a really um, high level. Uh, one of them is actually one of the other ones is a team that Oklahoma, speaking of which, played last week in Northwestern State. But just those programs that tend to, for one reason or another, tend to create those types of uh, cradles of, of coaches, if you will. But I'm with you that, you know, it's kind of weird that, oh, weird is not the right word. It's, it's, it's interesting that Georgia has really dominated this series the way that they have because it's not as if, there, there have been some years where Georgia has been demonstrably better than Georgia Tech. I think probably 2018 stands out in that way. That was a year Georgia hosted. I think that was a year Georgia Tech missed the postseason. But, you know, Georgia Tech was a national seed in 2019, and Georgia Tech has tended to be a regional team at bare minimum. And Georgia went through, I don't need to remind Georgia listeners of this, like Georgia went through some lean years. And yet, it always seemed like they just kind of had a little bit of an, an upper hand. And certainly since this is a new format with the, the weekend, I, I think the weekend series, as opposed to a series of midweek games, I think it's, it's taken on even, even more meaning and will be uh, even more important and more of a, um, uh, uh, more of a way to tell uh, what will be with these teams as we move throughout the season. It's uh, it is a contrast of styles and, you know, some of the, some of the issues that Georgia tech has had in the past have, have cropped up. I mean, they, they've still had some struggles with the bullpen, which is uh, just something that, uh, continues to be a little bit of a, a bugaboo. There's been some, there's been some positives in that regard. Luke Bartnicki, a longtime lefty reliever for them, has slimmed up, lost something like 20 pounds. His his stuff seems to have maybe taken a tick up because of being a little bit better condition. And put, moving Zach Maxwell into the rotation seems to have uh, seems to be taking at least for right now. And Chance Huff, the Vanderbilt transfer, who you know didn't do a whole lot last year, looks like an improved pitcher. So there are some positives to take away from the yellow jackets on the mound, but the whole of it still show tells the story of a team that is, that is still trying to figure out what it has on the mound. And the Georgia offense is not, I mean, all you have to do is look at the schedule this season and the results that Georgia has had to know that it's not necessarily going to be the kind of offense that's going to uh, pulverize a pitching staff that is struggling, but certainly it's going to put Georgia tech behind the eight ball. If it, if it can't get a, a little more consistency there, because I think we could feel fairly certain that, the Georgia pitching staff is going to be up to the task against a, a good Georgia tech lineup. Um, but typically uh, the Georgia pitching staff is up for the task. 
Yeah, what Georgia did offensively last weekend against Akron is like the best argument any Tennessee fan could make to me about why what they did against Iona is actually relevant because uh, Georgia won one of those games against Akron one to nothing. And look, I don't know how good Akron's going to be this year, but I don't have any reason to believe that they're going to be like suddenly make a, a huge jump and, uh, you know, into the, the top tier of the Mac. Uh, so, you know, you're, you're talking about, you know, really playing some tense games there against the Zips, uh, who, again, should not be competitive, uh, you know, with the, with the best teams in the Mac this year, I, I wouldn't think. So uh, a lot to be worked out offensively for the Bulldogs, but like, that's not their game. Their game is to beat you on pitching and defense and whoever controls the the tempo as, as they would say in basketball, whoever gets to play their game this weekend, whether, whether Georgia pitching uh, controls Georgia tech hitting or whether Georgia tech hitting gets the better of, of Georgia pitching. I mean, that just feels like the way the entire weekend is going to go here. Um, if, uh, if Georgia tech is able to, you know, if, if Georgia tech gets into games where it has to win, one to nothing, three to two, whatever. Like I don't love Georgia Tech's bullpen or defense, you know, holding up in, in these tight games against Georgia. But also if Tech is gonna score eight, nine, ten runs, like I don't I don't love Georgia's ability to to hang with that. Um, so I I'm the the contrasting styles makes this one all the more interesting for me. Yeah, no doubt. It's uh, that it should be fun. Like I'm, and I'm, I'm glad. Just on a side note, I, I'm glad that they have continued with this format. I think there was, there's obviously motivation on both sides to do it, or else it wouldn't have continued this way. But I do think, at least, I had some fear that with the pandemic kind of resetting a lot of things. Like I, I was a little bit worried that um, there just might be some reconsideration on one side or the other, and they might end up going a different direction. And I'm, I'm glad that that was not the case because this, this format really showcases this rivalry where. Like, was it cool that, you know, back in the day before the Braves built their new park, was it, was it kind of cool that they would play this thing at, at Turner Field on one night? Like, yeah, that was, that was kind of neat, but a series of midweek games just really wasn't doing justice to, to this rivalry, which I think more so than on the football diamond, which is a football diamond, football field, uh, which is these programs are in a very different place on the football field. Um, I think this rivalry can really shine on the diamond in a way it can't in the other sports. What if they did play football on a diamond? I know. What if they did like, like you, the only way to score a touchdown was to like, basically like if you stretched the diamond out to where like second base was at the end of one side of the field and home plate was on the other. So we're talking about a lot further. Like the only way to score a touchdown was to like push the ball over the second base bag. Like, so the defense just like (laughs) is getting more and more condensed as you get down the field to where now, like the only way to score a touchdown is to basically run a QB sneak and set the ball on the second base bag. Like football would be a, it'd be a very different. Or if you had to run, like if if you had to go around the bases. Yeah. Like you have to get to each corner of the the field to to score your, your, your touchdown. And it doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily matter how you get there, but you have to touch the bases in order. You know, <laughs> that would be, man, what a different, what a different world that would be. Somebody, uh, Oliver Luck, I don't know what league you're running these days, but call us if we've got ideas. Yeah. It seems like Oliver Luck, like every time there's like a new league popping up or like somebody's asking about who should be the commissioner of, of this or that, especially when it comes to college sports or football, uh, it seems like Oliver Luck's name comes up. So he's probably the right guy we're, we're shouting out there. Or, or The Rock. The Rock bought all the, uh, all the XFL rights. So uh, if anyone has an in with uh, Dwayne Johnson, uh, 
let us know. Hit us sure. on Twitter at Ted Cahill would, at Joe Healy BA. Yeah, we'd take that as well for sure. We're idea guys. <laughs> All right, let's head down to Miami. It's number 18, Florida, against number 25, Miami. They are playing this one at Mark Light Field, uh, where you can get a Mark Light shape. Um, I don't know. I don't know what flavor they're running out there for the Gators, but uh, I'm sure it'll be a good one. So if you are headed out there, you can grab a milkshake for me, not for lactose intolerant Joe, but do it for me. On the field, this one has been dominated by Florida over the years, but last year Miami went up to Gainesville and won a series. They are now looking to win back-to-back series against Florida for the first time in more than a decade. Won't be easy. Florida comes in um, feeling pretty good following um, you know a five and zero week last week. They won on Tuesday, uh, really putting that Liberty series loss to bed a little bit. Um, still have some things to work out obviously do the gators uh miami uh won their series against towson and florida or towson and harvard i should say but has not been tested the way that that florida um will this weekend so uh a lot to learn from both of these teams here this weekend i've been endeavoring while you talk to try to figure out what the week's mark light shake is um, I regret to inform you, it does not appear it has been announced yet. And we still are in the middle of the week, so that makes sense. Last week against Harvard, it was apple pie. Um, it looks pretty good. Like, obviously, I can't have it. But it's like, it, it appears to be <laughs> have made, like, they actually baked apple pies. And then, like, it's not just, like, apple pie flavoring. or Like, it, they baked apple pies, and they're in the shakes. So, um, that looks pretty good. Um, so, I, you know, if I could have that, that sounds like something I would I would enjoy. But, I, alas, I... I cannot have that. Uh, so apologies to you and the listener if I repeat some of what you said, because I, I cannot stress enough how much I was just really looking at, at shakes. Um, you can lose, by the way. I've heard. I've not been to Mark Light Field. Uh, first of all, have you been to Mark Light Field? I, I have not. I, I yeah was thinking about getting down there this year, uh, opted instead. I'll be at that Georgia Georgia Tech series, but that I was strong consideration was given to, to going this, for this weekend. Yeah, it's just like my for the listeners. The, and, silliness aside like for the listeners like the reason why that might be like it sounds like for teddy and i neither of us to have been there seems kind of crazy but like miami comes to us to play unc or nc state or wake or duke so like we usually don't have to go to miami so that's like part of the part of what happens there but yeah i think so to uh, to to move from the shakes begrudgingly and start talking about actual baseball stuff you know i'm with you i think there's a lot to learn here, it feels like a couple of teams uh, for different reasons that have kind of um, slogged through the early season, I think is maybe maybe fair to say. Um, there's some positives, I think, on either side with Miami. I think um, you have to look at the fact that um, Carson Palmquist's transition to the rotation uh, seems to have gone pretty well. Jake Garland has been um, very good in the rotation. So uh, Alex McFarlane has pitched pretty well in spurts and that's kind of taken a little bit of sting off the fact that Alejandro Rosario, who was kind of expected to be a guy to take another big step. And if he's pitching at his best alongside Palmquist, like they'd really be kind of cooking with gas and he hasn't quite been that, but the other guys they've gotten going have been able to take some of that, the sting off there. They also, this was not the program I would have necessarily associated with this but they seem to have done a pretty good job with transfer portal stuff maxwell romero jr from vanderbilt has been one of their better hitters so has jacob burke 
who came from southeastern Louisiana, uh, two of their three best hitters for average, and uh, you know two of the guys who have been more dynamic on this team. So they they played that game pretty well to go along with you know CJ Kafis having a good year, Yohandi Morales, no surprise there, having a good year. So uh, there have been some positives there for Miami. I'm not, but I say it's been a little bit inconsistent and a little bit um, disjointed just because we it's hard to know what to make of the schedule they've played. And Oh, by the way, as we know, they, they had to work pretty hard to win that series against Harvard last weekend. And so I don't exactly know um, what to take from that. Um, it's, it's similar with Florida, right? Where you've got, okay, you feel good about Hunter Barco and he's been excellent, you know, couldn't have been really too much better there, but um, feels like they're still kind of uh, figuring out the rest of it on the mound, which we talked about that last week, or, or perhaps it was, it was the week prior and, and the offense has been good, but what do we know exactly yet about, about the lineup? So I think this is a big weekend for learning and and I'm kind of hoping for, I don't, I don't mean this to necessarily denigrate last year's series, but it kind of felt like coming out of last year's series that, yeah, like Miami won it. And that was big news because Florida was number one coming into the season. So number one at the time, but we kind of came out of it going, you know, like, kind of like, ugh, like neither team looked great. And it, you know, and Miami won the series and that was something to celebrate considering how much they've struggled against Florida, but it, it wasn't like Miami came out of that series with us thinking like, okay, Omaha, here they come. Um, so I am kind of hoping for a little bit more of whoever does win this series. Like I really like to see the blueprint for what we're talking about in terms of how this team could be Omaha good. And maybe neither of them will ultimately, but that, I think that would be um, the ideal situation as we come out of this with one team or both really showing us what they could be on the top end. I am curious to see how Florida lines up behind Barco on the mound. Um, Timmy Manning has had, um, you know, mixed success, I would say, so far uh, in in the rotation. Uh, we'll see. I assume he'll be back there this week. We'll, we'll see what he has uh, on the mound. Uh, and then last week, Pierce Coppola, uh, Florida's freshman, was scratched from his start on Sunday due to back stiffness. I have not heard uh, what the word is there about whether he'll be ex- expected to be back for uh, for this Sunday or not. Phil Abner uh, got hit a little bit um, filling in for Coppola last weekend. So, you know, right now, Florida's still trying to figure some things out, not just on the mound. Chris Armstrong, Kendrick Hallilau, Judd Fabian have all been slow out of the gate uh, at the plate for the Gators. They've all shown signs, but, you know, they need to get those veterans going uh, if they're going to really access their highest potential as, as an offense. Colby Halter has been great. BT Riopel, you talked about Miami's transfers. BT Riopel transferred from Coastal. He's been very good so far. Uh, for Florida and Judd Fabian's younger brother, Derek Fabian, has been quite good as a freshman himself. So, I mean, they've got guys that are hitting. That's to say nothing of Sterling Thompson, who has four home runs already this season. Uh, but they they really need those vets to get going. And uh, this weekend would be a, a great time to do it. I, I agree. I would like to see one of these teams just kind of declare themselves um, as uh, as serious contenders. Um, it, it would be... It, this weekend should clear some things up for us with both of these teams. The competition for Miami has not been good to this point. I don't really know what to make of Georgia State. Uh, we think highly of Liberty, but you know what what Florida has done since then is a little less certain. So 
um, looking forward to, to learning more about both of these teams. One thing that to note here too, is with the series being in Miami, um, the atmospheres are going to be pretty good. They, they tend to get up for the series. There also is like invariably, um, going to be some moment where Miami and Florida players are jawing at each other. Um, and that, that the series tends to run hotter in Coral Gables. Um, and I think some of that is, is that the fans feel a little bit right on top of you. And now after we talked about not having been there, you've just seen enough of, of the games there to know the fans feel right on top of players a little bit at Mark light. The grandstands are very tall and angled. So they're like, feel literally on top of the players sometimes. So I think that's part of it, but and also the format of this series, when it's in Coral Gables, it's night game, night game, day game. It's two night games. And those night games um, at Mark Light tend to be pretty electric when they've got a rival in town. So I think the atmosphere is going to be, uh, you know, pretty much second to none outside of the, you know, the just the, the peak atmospheres in college baseball. But this series brings it out of the fans in Miami. Well, speaking of elite atmospheres, uh this series doesn't have quite the uh, the fanfare. There are no numbers next to these teams' names, but we can't not talk about it. That is the Reedy River rivalry. It's Clemson and South Carolina. Like I said, neither of these teams are ranked, uh, but it is still one of the best rivalries in college baseball. Uh, Joe, do you remember where we ranked it? I feel like we ranked it number two uh, to uh, behind Mississippi State and Ole Miss. Um when we did that top 25 rivalry rankings, I guess that was in 2020. So now a year and a half ago, uh, Clemson and South Carolina, both have played well to this point. They haven't played much in the way of serious competition, no disrespect to Indiana for Clemson, but, uh, Clemson just was not challenged, uh, as much as we would have expected in that series. Uh, both of them come in here with a lot to prove South Carolina kind of resetting after last year's team, uh, that, did host a regional, but wasn't the number one seed. And Clemson, of course, coming off of missing regionals, uh, looking to uh, to get back on track here. So uh, the stakes are high, no matter whether these teams are ranked or not ranked. Uh, should be an intriguing series. Again, this is another split one. They uh, uh, are starting in Columbia, um, going to Greenville, and then finishing in Clemson. I looked it up while you were talking. We had it ranked number three. Uh, we had it behind Mississippi, Mississippi State, which, you know, it, it's funny, like some of the feedback we got immediately after publishing this was kind of that these SEC West teams, like it, it kind of your mileage may vary. Like it depends on who you ask, like what they're what they think the best rivalry is for these teams, because there are so many good ones in that division that it's it can be sometimes hard. But um, but I stand by our choice, Mississippi and Mississippi State. Uh, number two was Fullerton and Long Beach State, which is one that I think a lot of people won't necessarily um, think of, but is certainly deserving. And then yes, number three, we had Clemson and, uh, in South Carolina. I, so I wrote about Clemson a couple weeks ago after they swept Indiana and, you know, Indiana had another tough weekend last weekend. And so it's better than your average opponent, right? Opening weekend. So many of these teams we've talked about, I don't better know than their of. one in five record indicates. Correct. But. Yes. But you know, when we're comparing them to teams that have played Towson and Harvard and Iona and whoever else like the Indiana is better than that. Um, but since I've written about them, that the offense has, has come along a little bit more. Um, you know, when I talked to Monty Lee after the first weekend, Caden Grice had had, had an okay weekend, but he, he really wasn't quite 
uh, himself yet, um, but he looks like he's kind of caught on. He's got he's got three home runs so far this season. They've also played the portal game well. They don't take a lot of transfers, but the guys they took, Tyler Corbett from the Citadel and uh, Ben Blackwell from Dayton, um, a couple middle infielders, have both been uh, really, really good so far. So that seems to uh, seems to have worked. And I think, you know, we're going to wait and see because, I mean, at this time last year, you know, I think it even goes beyond last year. I think there, there have been years where Clemson comes out of the gate pretty well on the mound. And I think we start to think like, okay, pitching has often been more of the question for Clemson. But then as the season goes on, like we, we become less and less convinced of, of what they have. And I think we're in a similar place now where it's, you know, Mac England has at times looked excellent and dominant in his first two starts. Uh, how real is this? He's a lot of one hit in 10 minutes. He's been very good. <laughs> very good. Yes. So, you know, the stuff is really good. Like he was good on the Cape. There's, there's a lot of reason to believe this is real, but you know, he's going to have to prove it. And South Carolina is going to be the best opportunity he's had yet. Even with South Carolina shortcomings, he's going to be the best opportunity he's, he's had yet. So I think that's a, a big thing for, for Clemson. You're right about South Carolina. It feels like a, an attempt by that program to change its identity you know, kind of in one off season and they still have guys who can hit the ball out of the ballpark, Andrew Eister, Bray- Braylon Wimmer chief among them, but they really kind of went all in on athleticism, both in the portal with Matt Hogan from Vanderbilt, uh, you know, Brent Belk from Missouri, Kevin Madden from Virginia tech, you know, newcomers like Michael Braswell. So they've, they've tried to kind of make their team a little more dynamic and that's a hard trick to pull off in one off season. So we'll have to see how well that works in year one. The str- one of the struggles they have right now is that they are already kind of fighting it from an injury standpoint on the pitching staff where, you know, Julian Bosnick, who is going to be a big part of this pitching staff is, um, has not pitched. And Josiah Seitler, who started a game earlier this season, uh, has been on the shelf the last couple of weeks. And so, um, they are a little bit shorthanded already on the mound, which is, you know, never in general, not a good place to be, but especially this early in the season, you know, you're, you're typically coming from a position of strength and the injuries happen as, as time goes on. But um, I suppose the, the silver lining of that is that they are using more of their pitching staff. So maybe as they get healthy, they've got a little bit of a deeper well to work from and having Will Sanders, you know, team USA alum available to lead the rotation is a nice place to, to build off of. Uh, but they, they certainly do have some, some questions there. And against a Clemson offense, it looks pretty good as we stand right now. Um, that's not exactly the best place to be. For this weekend to work for the Gamecocks, I think Will Sanders has to absolutely win on Friday night. I don't, if, if he doesn't get it done on Friday night, I, it, it's going to be uphill battle for Clemson or uh, for South Carolina. Not only do they lose, uh, you know, the home field advantage from there going to, to Greenville and then closing at Clemson, but you know, Sanders is their, their star pitcher right now. The, the injuries taking out Bosnick and is, uh, is a tough one for them. And, um, it, it's, they, they have not started off great on the mound. They're hitting pretty well right now though. Um, we'll see if that can continue, you know, again, the, the clubs and pitching staff looks good to this point. South Carolina's offense is going to be something different. Andrew Eister, uh, doing what he, I shouldn't even say doing what he's, he usually does. He's 19 for 37. He has three homers already. Uh, he's got big clutch hits already. He, he is it. What, what he's doing is just being at the center of it all. And that's what he's done for the last few years for the Gamecocks. Uh, and then Michael Braswell coming in, he was a highly touted freshman. He already has 11 walks and five strikeouts um, through eight games. 
that's pretty loud for a freshman. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how, how that continues to progress. And you talked about South Carolina's desire to get more athletic and they were a little bit of an outlier in the sec in that they were not the most athletic team. The sec has gone really all in basically on power pitching and big time athletes. South Carolina was a little different. And I think the park was a little bit of a reason why that was the case that, you know, you can hit a lot of home runs there. It's, not the you know just just the way the park is set up is a little bit different from some other fields in the sec and they kind of went in on that um but it, it does seem like they're going back a little more towards the uh the athleticism route uh, we'll see how that fares over over time but uh a very intriguing series here i genuinely do not know what to expect um other than great atmospheres and close games, because literally it doesn't matter how good or bad these teams are. Like this series always delivers. Yeah. I, I think I come away from it and maybe this is unfair, but I think I'm prepared to come away from it. And also I should give the caveat. It just kind of depends on what it looks like. Cause not all wins and not all results are created equal, but if Clemson comes away with a series win here and certainly a series sweep, like I, I think I would be, again, depending on how it happens, but I think I'd be a lot closer to saying like, you know, this team might be for real. We might've underrated this team in the, in the preseason where if South Carolina wins it, I'm not saying there can't be some positives to take from it. The hill is just so much steeper to climb in the sec. Like we, we talked about this with Texas A&M and in the review episode earlier this week, we've talked about this with Alabama recently, the climb is just tough. And when, and when you're coming from a point of there are just so many more teams that are on paper, more talented than South Carolina, that's just a tough jump to make. So if they win the series, it's definitely a positive. They'll definitely take it. It's certainly better than the alternative, but I'm, I'd be less prepared to say like, okay, this team is, has kind of arrived with Clemson. I I think I'd be a little more willing to go there, especially given, you know, what they did against Indiana, because whether, no matter what we think about Indiana, the way they kind of dismantled them the first two days was pretty impressive. Yeah. I, um, I, I think you're onto something there. I just, how this game or how this series gets played out is I, I, I would be hesitant to even say with the Clemson sweep that I would be all in on, on Clemson all of a sudden that, you know, if they win three close games against South Carolina, like, okay, but what does that really mean? I think South Carolina is a regional team, but how much more than a regional team do we think the South Carolina team is, especially in their current state, again, with, with some of the injuries that they've taken, I, I just, I don't know. Like I I've said many times on this episode that I'm looking forward to learning more. And like, yeah, that's true here in a sense, but like, I, I, I still am going to have a lot of questions about both teams really almost no matter how this series goes. Well, and that can be kind of fun, right? I mean, I think sometimes we can get, I'll just tell on myself, like I can get burdened a little bit by looking for something to either confirm or counteract a, a hypothesis I have about a team or a series. And sometimes it can kind of just be nice to have the open mind of like, I don't know what's going to happen here and something's going to happen and coming out of it. I probably won't have any more of an idea that can actually be kind of free. It can be. I mean, you can just uh, enjoy these, these three games and uh, you know, have fun with it. I, I will say though, that like Clemson is sitting here at eight and O and uh, that has to mean something. Um, they actually don't start ACC play next week. They're like the one team that doesn't. Uh, most ACC teams are starting next week, but because Clemson doesn't need to take a, a finals week off, 
the way their schedule works out, they still have uh, another week to get ready for ACC play, which is significant. I mean, they have a good team in Northeastern coming in, but there are there's still a couple weeks for them before they uh, they get into ACC play, and um, I, that's really when we're going to learn more. Uh, they get Miami uh, the first week, and then at Pitt, and then NC State, and at Notre Dame, and you know you're off and running, and but then you're halfway through the year, and like we'll certainly have a feeling for what what Clemson is or isn't by then. But um, at the very least, this weekend would be a, a significant confidence booster uh, for a team that's already probably riding pretty high, considering that they're undefeated. All righty, Joe. Those are the big ones this weekend. Um, like you said, there are plenty of other ones around the country. So why don't you, uh, why don't you take us through some of the, uh, the series that we didn't touch on yet? It's actually a little bit of a shorter list this week. Cause like I said, because there is so much that should be defined as on the radar, it actually created less stuff off the radar. Cause kind of by definition, the stuff that's off the radar still has to include good teams. And so many of those are swallowed up by some of these marquee series. So I don't, mean to downplay some of what's out there because there is some some decent stuff out there and one uh but a lot of it I, I should say i should finish this thought here one of them is that you know some of the things that i normally would throw out here were things that, that you mentioned at the top which you know um has has been long enough now i guess i'll refresh you but like you know uc irvine oregon state ucsb and oregon the frisco tournament iowa texas a&m washington state wichita state leclerc classic you know east carolina michigan indiana state maryland the series that Tulane and UCF have against Mississippi state and Ole Miss respectively. Um, those are all things that I guess are off the radar because of how good this weekend is, but in the grand scheme of things are very much on the radar. Um, so those are some of the others there. One other, I will mention uh, Nevada and air force mountain West play get started this weekend. They always do this because of the way their conference works. They do um, an extensive conference season, but they also start it early and they do, you know, in some cases, double round robins, like it's a smaller leagues. So they, they, their schedule is a little bit wonky. Um, the best series of, of the ones that are starting Mountain West play this weekend is Nevada and Air Force, uh, Nevada team that we predicted to win the conference. And, and they've played a, a tough enough uh, schedule so far, Grand Canyon, uh, midweek against Arizona State, and then a series against UC Santa Barbara uh, that they're three and four, but that's actually a pretty good three and four considering. So I think they're right on track for where they thought we thought they were going to be. And then Air Force, it was a little bit of a surprise team last year. And we know the big name to know here is, is Paul Skeens. Off to a bit of a slow start with the bat. That can be said of really the entire Air Force team. They're hitting, as we record here on Wednesday, 145 as a club. That is not uh, not very good. Um, and the competition has been solid. Iowa, Ball State, Army, Richmond, Navy, Campbell. Um, but it's not overwhelmingly so. So I don't, maybe there's a little concern there with the Air Force's offense, but uh, Skeens uh, is better. Let him get mound. to altitude and we'll see what happens. That's true. Yeah. I mean, you start, yeah, you start, start getting balls up into the thin air and anything can happen. Uh, you may also remember Skeens moving to the rotation this year. He was not particularly good opening weekend against Iowa, although he did strike out eight and three and a third innings. He was much better second weekend against Navy, uh, six innings, two hits, one run, uh, no walks, nine strikeouts. So, uh, perhaps a return to form for him. And certainly, you know, regardless of what the numbers say so far, I would expect Air Force to, and they're at home, Air Force is at home. I would expect them to give Nevada a tough series uh, there. So uh, the best Mountain West series in, in, in the beginning conference play. Okay, but my actual choice here 
even though I did a little bit more of an extended preview, I guess, of Nevada and Air Force than I intended there. Uh, TCU and Kentucky uh, playing at Kentucky. And part of the reason I bring this one up is it's two teams that are off to pretty good starts, and it's two teams that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think we've talked about them at all. Is that wrong? I think you might be right. Yeah, so, and like, part of it is, uh, you know, scheduling related, although, especially with Kentucky, and, and although, you know, TCU did just play a series against Nebraska, but of course the, you know, some of the juice came out of that one when Nebraska lost that series to Sam Houston, so. I, I think we very briefly shouted out the MLB4 tournament, uh, but that was more about, yeah, like, right. Cal beating TCU than TCU doing anything there. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, Cal, which then, you know, series lost to Illinois Chicago and has been up and down and and um, between you know, Teddy just to give listeners I guess a peek like Teddy and I went back and forth in like the Pac-12 pecking order between Arizona State and Cal on like and the answer just might be neither of them um, they're both kind of struggling so the answer might be that the Pac-12 has four really good teams that have separated themselves from the pack or whatever it is yeah but, uh... yeah <laughs> yeah very very de- maybe a very defined top and bottom half this season so we'll we will see but anyway regardless both teams off to a pretty good start. Um, TCU, I think we could, in a different world, we could have ranked you know, based on their results because, you know, the MLB four wasn't what it was when TCU was in the tournament back in 2020, but it's still pretty solid. And, you know, Nebraska, for all their shortcomings so far, is better than average team there. Still think that's a contender in the Big Ten. And they're seven and one against that that competition. And so the the, the pitching has been the thing for TCU, which is not going to surprise anybody, especially when you consider Kirk Sarlouis being the, the head coach now, but I think it's been kind of exactly what they would have wanted it to look like so far where the rotation has been good. Austin Krobe, um, Brett Walker, the Oregon transfer. And then I think most importantly, Riley Cornelio, because I think, you know, we knew what they were going to get with Krobe to a certain degree. And while there were questions about, you know, Brett Walker moving from the PAC 12, where maybe there's some more pitchers environments being on the West coast um, how will he fare in the Big 12? And we still have to see that, but he's been good so far. But Cornelio, highly touted recruit coming to campus two years ago and has just never put it together. And it's early. I don't want to get too you know, hot and bothered over 11 and third innings, but he's been really, really good. And that's been a big part of the rotation. And then the bullpen with Marcelo Perez, Caleb Bolden, the Arkansas transfer, River Ridings has been great so far. At least that trio has. So that's kind of looked like what TCU would want it to look like. And offensively, the young guys really kind of leading the way. If you take out Tommy Sacco, veteran infielder, um, the next three hottest hitters are Braden Taylor and Elijah Nunez, who are sophomores, and David Bishop, who's a freshman. So this is a young offense that, uh, at least the core of which is young, uh, that I think is kind of on the come up there. So a pretty well-rounded team that I, I you know, I think is, is um, probably a little better than we were giving them credit for early in the season. And I suspect we will probably be ranking at, at some point in the future. We know less about Kentucky. The competition hasn't been as good. The offensive numbers like in step have been excellent so far, but we don't exactly know what to, uh, to do there. The defense has been a little bit leaky. Like I think that's something to, to look at, especially considering um, the competition and who knows, you know, cold weather and things like that can, can play a role, but you know, fielding 970 and Magdiel Cotto had a start earlier this season where he gave up six runs and none of them were earned. So that's kind of what, what they've been dealing with a little bit there. The pitching has also not been exactly what they would have hoped for, but it's been, it's been okay. And we talked about transfers earlier and in, in, in this, 
this is a program that went really heavy on the transfers and we'll have to see what it amounts to in terms of postseason or not, but it has worked in terms of the transfers are among some of the most productive guys they have. Uh, I mentioned Kodo a minute ago. He's been one of the more effective starting pitchers they've had. Tyler Gilfoyle, a reliever transferred from Lipscomb has been good. Darren Williams transfer from Eastern Kentucky has been arguably their most effective pitcher. Um, John Thrasher from Hartford has been really, really good. Daniel Harris, uh, transfer from Eastern Kentucky has been among their better hitters. Hunter jump from Arizona state is off to a reasonably nice start. The exception is Adam Fogel from Hawaii. Uh, he's off to a bit of a slow start. Um, but the transfers are in a lot of cases, the guys who are leading the way here. Um, and so that's kind of what they were hoping for. And again, we'll just have to see what it all amounts to when it's all said and done. Yeah. I think, uh, this weekend, I'm really looking to see what Kentucky's pitching brings to the table. They've used an awful lot of guys. They've used 16 pitchers to this point. Um, you know, Mag Cotto has really had mixed results. Like I don't having not watched that start where he gave up the six unearned runs. Like, I mean, that can go one of two ways, either they truly were unearned runs and like, that's just tough luck. Or what if it was, you know, something a little more, troubling than that from a pitching perspective um but they just haven't gotten a ton of depth from their starters yet and you know is that is that by design you know we'll, we'll have to see uh but i am i am curious about how that's going to go uh this weekend because i think tcu is going to pitch well um you know you you detailed the guys that that have been getting it done from that standpoint but the this tcu offense uh, it might not be the most powerful out there that you're going to find. Um, you know, it's a, it's an offense that as a team is slugging 399 is all. Um, but, you know, they're, they're going to put some pressure on you. They have 15 stolen bases. Most of those are from Elijah Nunez. Uh, they got some guys that, that can hurt you like Braden Taylor and Nunez and, and Tommy Sacco. But uh, it, it's, it's a, it, it is a team that is going to just be a little more about the pitching staff this year, rather than an offense that that is going to go out there and blast you for eight runs a game. Uh, so what is Kentucky, what, what is this Kentucky staff able to do against a lineup like that? And, and are they able uh, to match up with, uh, with TCU's arms? Yeah, I, th- I think that's, I think that's right. And I think with TCU, it's, I don't, at the risk of being a little hyperbolic, like if the makings are there when you talk about a veteran, the kind of some of the veterans they have, like an Austin Crowe, and then a, a higher end arm like Cornelio, like it really is kind of the makings of what we used to see with these pitching staffs that haven't quite been the same the last several years. It's been a while since we've had kind of a vintage TCU pitching staff, and this might not be that in the end, but it does at least have kind of the raw materials of what that used to look like, and, you know. That one series is not going to tell us whether or not that's fully the case. Um, but I certainly like where it's trending. I, I think this is a fun series. Like this, this is, I think they played the series last year as well. I, I, I think it's a kind of fun one uh, to see TCU and Kentucky going at it. Um, just, uh, you know, a, a little bit different in the way they go about things. Kentucky usually a little more offensive and, uh, I don't know. There, there's, I, I like the Big 12 SEC crossover. I feel like we don't see as much of it on weekend series that, you know, you see like Oklahoma and, and Texas will wander over and play midweeks. And, and Texas actually does a good job of about playing, um, 
non-conference series. But I guess those two are about to become SEC teams. So I, I don't know. Like, I would, I would like to see a little more crossover between the two conferences. So I, I guess that's really where I'm coming from here when I say this is fun, that uh, seeing some Big 12 and, uh, and, and SEC play is, is always good. We see plenty of ACC, SEC action on the – I'd like to see it happen on the other, uh, you know, end of the, the conference footprint to, to see the, 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 the two conferences mix it up. Also significant here uh, for Kentucky or for TCU rather is that uh, they are staying in Kentucky and playing Louisville on Tuesday. So it's a big trip for uh, for the Horned Frogs, and then they go home and they play Army next weekend, and then they get into Big Twelve play. So this is uh, this is really their their last uh, uh, you know tune up. It's not the last tune up that that's next week, but this is the this is a big test here, uh, the last one of non conference play. And again, it's already been a, a pretty solid non-conference showing for TCU here. And uh, as the Big 12 pecking order shakes out and we see more from Oklahoma State and Texas at the top of the conference, maybe TCU can find a way to, uh, to get into that mix as well. All right, that's going to do it for us uh, here today. Uh, we've, we went through a lot there. There's a, like I said at the top of this show, week three is loaded. We are very excited for it. Uh, hopefully, after all of that, you're uh, you're ready to go uh, for this third weekend of college baseball action. You can find uh, more analysis over at baseballamerica.com. We'll have everything covered there throughout the weekend in terms of uh, in terms of keeping you updated on on how these uh, these tournaments and, and series are going. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA, and we will be back here with another episode of the Baseball America College podcast on Monday, recapping all of the action that was. Uh, you can subscribe on your favorite podcasting app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find us. And we greatly appreciate everyone uh, who has hit that that follow or subscribe button, whatever the, uh, whatever the case may be there on, on your favorite app. Uh, so until next week, thank you all for listening. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.